Uh, let's pray, uh, and then let's dive into God's Word together. Uh, gracious Father, um, we gather together because you first loved us, and uh, you have called us to know you, um, to be your children by faith, um, and we, I just ask that now you, you will be our teacher, your Holy Spirit will uh, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us today. Um, God, accomplish your good purpose, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question and ask you to please... Answer it as honestly as you can, but not out loud. I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about holiness, and I want you to think about happiness. Holiness and happiness. How do those two things fit together, or do they? If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, let me just insert, if you're not, I'm really glad you're here. I'm, I'm really grateful that you've honored us to come and to, uh, to check it out, to find out what me, being a believer in Jesus means. So I'm glad you're here. But if you are a believer, if you've come to that place of making that choice to put your trust in him, you probably know that one of God's desires for you is that you be holy. His word tells us that, 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus wants you to be holy. How about happy? Does he want you to be that? I'm asking because I personally experienced a lot of confusion on this issue, on the relationship between holiness and happiness. And my confusion um, led me to experience a fair amount of grief, hardship. Because on the one hand, I really, really wanted to be happy. I still do. Uh, but I knew that Jesus wanted me to be holy. And I thought that those two desires were opposed to each other. In fact, I was told that by certain Christian leaders. I remember reading uh, one very well-respected Christian author, many of you would probably know the name if I gave it to you, uh, reading in a devotional he had written something like this, quote, continually remind yourself of what the purpose of your life is. It is holiness, not happiness. Which made me think, well, if I'm going to be serious about following Jesus and being holy, I've, I've got to give up my desire to be happy. You know, that's a lot easier said than done. Uh, no matter how hard I tried, I could not seem to rid myself of my persistent desire to be happy. Now, some of you are probably hearing this and thinking, wow, what a weirdo. Um, <laughs> But others of you maybe can relate uh, because you really want to be the person 
Jesus wants you to be. And so you want to be holy. And you also really want to be happy. Because everybody does. And you've been told or you've assumed that those two desires are in conflict. But what if that's not true? What if there is no actual conflict between God's desire that we be holy and our desire that we be happy? I'm not exaggerating when I say that this is one of the most liberating truths I've ever encountered. And I can still remember when I first encountered it. I was a student at Western Seminary when Pastor John Piper came and did a series of chapel messages. And up to that point, I had viewed my desire to be happy as something I had to resist and fight against in order to become the person God wanted me to be because you either pursue holiness or you pursue happiness, but you can't pursue both. And Piper showed me scripture after scripture that said exactly the opposite. That the pursuit of holiness rightly understood is the pursuit of happiness of the truest, deepest, most enduring happiness. Scriptures like Psalm 1611, which says, In your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or John 1511, where Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Our problem is not that we want to be happy. Our problem is that we think we can find happiness, the deepest, truest happiness, outside of God and His will for us to be holy. And instead of treasuring Him as the only one who can make us truly happy. We treasure other things above Him. And we seek happiness in things outside of Him. And that not only dishonors Him, it leads to all kinds of serious disappointment, heartache, and misery. It's a terrible problem. So what's the solution? Is the solution to give up the desire to be happy? Yeah, good luck with that. It doesn't work. No, the solution is to believe Jesus when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's, that's a picture of deep heart satisfaction. The solution is to seek your deepest satisfaction, your deepest happiness in him. And what I want you to see, and I again acknowledge my debt to Piper on this, the insights I share, many of them are from him. I want you to see, it's not only okay to seek your happiness, it's actually necessary. Because here's the thing, you're going to do it. You're going to pursue your happiness. What you need to understand is where that happiness is ultimately found. And to honor Christ by seeking it in him. 
Seeking your happiness in Jesus is at the very heart of what it means to really be a Christian. Why do I say that? I want you to think about the fact that Jesus called certain people hypocrites, certain spiritual leaders. Okay, what's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something that they're not. What were these leaders pretending to be? Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Okay, so they pretended to be people who honored God. They they acted like that on the outside. They said the right things about God. They acted like they really cared about him. But Jesus said their hearts were far from him. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean if your heart is far from something? Doesn't it mean you don't really care? Doesn't it mean that you don't find any joy, any pleasure in that? You don't delight in it. You don't desire it. These guys found no delight in God. The scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord. They didn't. They acted like they did, but not really. They didn't really love him. They did not have a heart for him. And according to Jesus, that's a serious problem. On another occasion, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Somebody came up to him and said, teacher, uh, can you help us out here? There's a lot of commandments. Which one is the most important? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Having a heart delighting in, seeking your happiness in God really matters. It really matters. It's part of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, a heart for God. How do we get that? How do we get that? That's what I want to focus on. If it really matters that we have a genuine heart for God and not be hypocrites, what has to happen in our lives in order for us to have that? Well, let's see what God's Word says about it. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. There's a note sheet in your folder if you haven't found it yet. And the scripture will be on the screen. This is a, this is a letter. The Apostle Peter wrote this to some fellow believers in Jesus. And let's start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We just sang about that. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's referring to Jesus coming again and claiming those who 
trust him. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So notice how this talks about having a heart for God. Verse 8 says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you see it? Believing in Jesus is connected to loving him and rejoicing in him. Now, is that something that was unique for these people? The ones who got this letter first? Well, no. Because the very next verse says, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is a description of what genuine faith looks like. Saving faith. These people have real faith, and that real faith includes a real heart for God. And the question I want to answer is, how'd they get that? How'd they get that? Where does does a heart for God come from? There's two answers here. How do you get a heart for God? First, you must be born again. You must be born again. I'll just quote directly from Jesus here because he used that very expression in a conversation he had with one of those spiritual leaders who honored God with their lips but whose hearts were far from him. He said... To a man named Nicodemus, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look how important this is. This is talking about the difference between being included in God's kingdom and not. That's what's at stake here. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, it's a spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. And that's what had happened to these people Peter's writing to. These people who loved Jesus, though they'd never seen him. These people who found joy in him. They did that because they'd experienced this spiritual birth, new birth. And we need to experience the same thing if we never have. Nobody is born a Christian. It takes a second birth to become a Christian. So the fact that you have Christian parents or grandparents or you've gone to church every day since you can remember, that doesn't make you a Christian. 
If we're going to have a heart for God, we need to be born again. Why? Well, because apart from the spiritual birth, Scripture says, we're dead spiritually. Ephesians 2, verse 1, describing people before they were born again, says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Spiritual death. They're obviously not physically dead. He's talking to them. They're reading. They're walking around, or they were uh, before they experienced spiritual birth. They were dead while living. They were spiritually dead. They were dead to God, in other words, unresponsive to God, disconnected from God. And this disconnection from God affects everything about us, not just our beliefs. We sometimes talk about believers and unbelievers. There's more to this than just belief. Okay, it's true that before we're born again, our beliefs are messed up. So we might just deny God's existence completely, or we may doubt his goodness. We may think, well, he doesn't care. Sin's not a big deal, or whatever. Those are false beliefs. It's also true that before spiritual birth, our actions are messed up. Not just our beliefs, but our actions. Uh, we, we aren't able to obey God properly. Uh, we, we don't thank him the way we should. We take him for granted. We take his blessings for granted. Um, we, we don't avoid evil like we should. We don't do all of the good things that he would want us to do. Our actions are messed up. Our beliefs are messed up. But that's not all. Our affections are messed up. Affections, emotions, desires. Those are messed up too. We don't feel what we should feel in response to God. We don't. We don't feel the awe and the gratitude we should feel. It's, it's like if we went to the Grand Canyon, and here's somebody coming to the Grand Canyon, and they've never seen it before, and all of a sudden, for the first time, they see that amazing sight, or pick some other amazing sight. But somebody, for the first time, they see something totally amazing, they go, yeah, whatever. And you're like, what is wrong with you? You should feel something. That's amazing. You should feel amazed. We don't feel grief over our sin because of the way it dishonors God, because of the way it hurts others. We don't rejoice in his goodness. We don't treasure him above all things. Our desires are messed up. So uh, think about it this way. Healthy people desire certain things. If you're healthy, you desire certain things. You, you, you desire food. You desire water. You desire social interaction. You know, if you're married, you desire sexual union with your spouse. One of the symptoms that people are not healthy is when they don't desire the things that they should. Well, according to the Bible, spiritually healthy people 
desire God because he's always good. He's always loving. He's always truthful. He's always dependable. He's always righteous. He's always glorious. He's always desirable. In fact, he's more desirable than anything else you desire. Because anything else you desire is only good because it reflects his goodness. That's the truth. If something is good, it's good because of God. So we should desire him, we should love him, we should trust him, we should delight in him, and if we don't, there's a problem. Well, if we haven't been born again, the problem is we're spiritually dead to God, and that's why we don't desire him. We need a spiritual birth. Okay, how does that happen? Well, go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Spiritual birth is God's work. He does it. We can't do it. We can't make ourselves spiritually alive. And I can just imagine somebody thinking, then why are we talking about it? Because it says he's caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. Mercy. God is merciful. You know what that means? That means he cares. He cares about our desperate situation. He cares that we're spiritually dead. He's responsive to our need. Now, what do you do when you have a need and here's someone who knows you and cares about you and loves you and can meet your need? What do you do? You ask. That's what you do. You ask. So ask. Ask God to do what He alone can do because He's merciful. Ask Him. John 1.12 Yet to all who received Him. That's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the one who came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. The one who came to give life to the dead. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Spiritual birth into God's family. Listen very carefully. Please listen carefully. If right now, if right now you want to receive him, if right now you want to be a child of God, if right now you want to be born into his family, ask him. Because he's having mercy on you right now. Because if he weren't, you wouldn't want it. So ask. Ask him. Receive Jesus by faith. And ask him to give you a heart for God. What if you've already done that? What if you've already done that? 
You've already been born again, but your heart is cold. Your heart is sluggish toward God. And if you were honest, you would say, I just don't desire God that much. I'm not treasuring him above all things. I'm not seeking joy in him. I'm not delighting in him. What do you do? Well, that's the second answer to see here. How do you have a heart for God? You must remind your heart of what is true. You must remind your heart of what is true. Spiritual birth is just that. It's birth. It's not instant maturity. Right? We, we still have to grow up in every way. Every way. Okay, so think about it. Uh, being born spiritually does not instantly give you perfect thoughts about God, perfect beliefs. You, know, you, you put your trust in Christ immediately, bam, all your thoughts are completely accurate and perfectly aligned with God's truth. No. It takes time. We have to grow in our thinking. It's the same with actions, right? You become born spiritually, your actions don't instantly become perfect in every respect. We've got to grow in that. Well, the same is true with our affections. Spiritual birth doesn't instantly make our hearts perfect so that we always feel the right things. What's it do? It gives us a spiritual appetite for God that we never had before. But that appetite still has to be fed. It has to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured. So, second, or 1 Peter 2.2, 2, this is the very next chapter. Like newborn babies, don't you like being called a baby? Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. What's pure spiritual milk? It's truth. It's God's truth. Feed on the truth. The truth about who he is. The truth about all that he's done for us in Christ. The truth about all that he has promised to do for us in Christ. We need to know what's really true, especially since this world is so full of nonsense about who God is, about who we are, about what the future is. And our hearts, the human heart is such a fickle thing. It's so fickle. Our desires, our emotions, our feelings are so easily led astray about God and our hearts so easily grow cold toward Him. So we've got to remind our hearts of the truth. See, that's, that's what Peter's doing here. The things he's writing, these people already knew that. They knew that. But he's reminding them. He says he's writing to people who've been born again. He's reminding them of what's true. That God... According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that's alive, a hope that will happen through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus really rose from the dead, and that means in him you have hope, you have an inheritance to look forward to, that nothing can take away from you. 
It's being kept from you, and you're being guarded by God's power for this coming salvation, this salvation that's coming ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, it's true that in the meantime, you may be grieved by various trials, and they're hard, but even that's for a good purpose. Because your faith, which is more valuable to God than gold is to us, may be strengthened so that you, so that you may receive praise and honor and glory when Jesus is revealed. It's going to happen. Eternal joy is coming. Jesus is real. Salvation is real. God's power is real. And God is for you in Christ. So remind your fickle little heart of what's true. And if the fire in your heart is dying out, don't just say, oh well. Fan it into flame. You know, if you're sitting around a campfire, somebody just start a campfire, you're out camping, you know, and the evening is young, and that fire starts to die, what does everybody do? You know, well, I guess the fire's dying now. <laughs> no. Somebody, there's always a guy. There's always one guy. He'll put the wood on there and arrange it and blow on it and fan it, and pretty soon you're all backing up. Right? Don't ever say that feelings don't matter. It's not true. I was taught that, but it's not true. A heart for God matters. It is true that you can't control your feelings. I agree with that. But you can cultivate feelings. And you cultivate them by reminding your heart of what is true. If the fire's dying down, stoke it. Stoke it with truth. Fan it. Follow the example of Scripture. Psalm 42, 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. He doesn't say, well, I'm downcast. Oh, well. He preaches. He preaches truth. I will praise him again, for he is my Savior. He is my God. Heart, get back in the game. That's what we have to help each other do. Hebrews says, encourage one another as long as it is called today. Last time I checked, today is still today. And I love that verse, because what that tells me is we need daily encouragement. So the question is not for you to say, oh, has anybody encouraged me today? No. Have you encouraged anybody today? Have you encouraged anybody with truth today? Use God's truth to encourage one another to preach to your own heart, fan it in the flame. You must be born again. And you must keep reminding your heart of what's true. If you haven't yet been born again, ask him. 
Ask Jesus to give you spiritual birth. And if you have any questions about that, you can write a note on that slip that's in your folder. We're going to turn them in here in just a minute. You can send me an email, Scott at philida.org. I'd love to talk to you. You can talk to somebody you came with. Don't put it off. If there is the slightest ember of desire, that's God having mercy on you. You must be born again. And you must keep telling your heart the truth. Let's pray. Father, you have had mercy on us even now. You have allowed us to gather. You have allowed us to come together to open your word, to hear it, to see it, to sing it. Lord, use this truth in us because we are weak, we are feeble, we are prone to become cold. Let it not happen. I pray for anybody here who, who needs that spiritual birth that you would give it to them. You'd be gracious to them. And for all of us whose hearts get weary at times, we get downcast. Lord, fan us into flame. For your glory, God, for our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.